0: It's good to see you this evening. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Mark Picar, and I'd like to welcome every one of you that have come tonight to this uh, seminar on the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, if you are a, a Christian, then you are in the line of a constantly reforming, reviving church. From the time of Adam and Eve to our day, there has always been need for reformation, ongoing, but. Certainly the greatest reformation that we have known is the one that happened uh, in the 1500s, and that's the one that we're going to be thinking about this weekend. So we're glad you've come. If you're a guest, uh, if you need restrooms, they're the first two doors on the left-hand side as you go down the hall. And if you're a guest, I'd also like to welcome you back tomorrow. You should have gotten one of these inserts as you came in today, a bulletin, tomorrow at 10... 50. We will continue with part two of the celebration of the Reformation. We're going to feed lunch to anybody that comes tomorrow. Uh, we invite you to that after that presentation, and then in the afternoon we'll conclude at three o'clock with uh, f- closing principles and ongoing reform. So we hope that you will you will join us for that. I would like to introduce you this evening to uh, Professor Roland Blyke, Dr. Blyke, He is a professor emeritus at Walla Walla University, where he was the chairman of the Department of History and Philosophy. My wife took classes from Dr. Bleich when she was there, and uh, she took class in the Reformation. He specialized in church history. He also specialized and has a concentration in church-state relations in Nazi Germany in the 30s and the complicity of the church leading up to the Nazi takeover in Europe and some we were just sitting here on the on the pew talking about the fact that we would like to have a seminar on that in the time to come and uh, and uh, Roland and his wife Edith uh, emigrated from Germany he grew up under the thumb of the the Nazis and has quite a story to tell so we will have him back to tell that story sometime too but tonight it is the Reformation. So uh, tomorrow when you come, we're going to do some singing. We're going to sing some, uh, some good Reformation theology songs. Um, tonight, however, we're going to dispense with that so that the time can be fully Roland. Has he come to talk to us about the, the tinderbox of flame, the causes that led up to the Reformation. So Roland, if you would come up here, I will pray for you, and uh, you're off and going. Lord Jesus, this evening we, we give you this time. We thank you for the work that you have done in history through your servants for generation after generation. And as we take this look back this evening, we pray that you will impress upon us with your Holy Spirit what we need to learn so that we can be better disciples of yours as we go forward into the future. I ask for your blessing on on Roland this evening, give him your spirit, and uh, as you did, Luther, give him confidence and power as he speaks to us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Professor Blake, we are, we are glad to have you here. Thank you.
1: On February 8, 1521, the papal representative, Aleander, wrote to the Cardinal de Medici in Italy the following report. But now the whole of Germany is in full revolt. Nine-tenths raise the war cry, Luther, while the watchword of the other tenths who are indifferent to Luther is death to the Roman Curia. Yesterday I saw on one and the same page Luther with a book and Hutton, With the sword over them was printed in fair letters to the champions of Christian freedom. So far has the world gone. The Germans in blind adoration press around these two scoundrels and adore even during their lifetime the men who were bold enough to cause a schism in order to tear the seamless coat of Christ. And I am given up to such people. Some three years before, on October 31, 1517, an unknown monk and professor of biblical studies posted some thesis for a disputation. The disputation never happened. And yet, by doing so, he changed the course of history. Incidents like these that sparked major revolutions in history have always been only the spark that set off tinder that had accumulated over many generations. Among uh, those, I don't think my monitor here is on. Uh, can we can we fix that? among those uh, um, Underlying causes that I would like to review with you tonight are papal corruption in the Middle Ages, church-state controversy during the Middle Ages, popular heretical movements, papal schism and the Renaissance papacy, uh, mysticism and popular piety, uh, Renaissance humanism, and Christian Humanism. This is an armful, and uh, 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 you have to be um, aware that we can only do that review in a rather, rather brief summary type of fashion. But I'd like to uh, give you a broad overview. There are many other factors that played into it. Uh, in history, like in life, everything is Hooked to everything else. To the first uh, topic. Uh, which is. Uh, papal corruption. In the middle ages. By. The 11th century. About 500 years. Before the Protestant Reformation. The Roman church. Had descended to a very low level. There was widespread corruption on all levels in the papal church. Uh, Bishops and abbots ruled over vast territories. Uh, Sometimes in some countries, more than half of the total land was owned and ruled over by bishops and abbots. These uh, church dignitaries performed all duties of government, including that of defense. These church positions uh, proved to be very lucrative to ambitious men because they offered power and income. Uh, these uh, candidates for those offices were not always the finest Christian specimens. One of the problems of the church then was the problem of Simony. The simony is the acquisition of uh, ecclesiastical office by payment of money. Uh, that included, that problem included the papacy itself. Uh, Benedict the Ninth, I was a young pope who acquired his office in that fashion. He made the town of Rome ring with the scandal of his life. He was reputed to be a homosexual. Some said bisexual. He was addicted to gambling and uh, racked up a horrendous debt, which he could not pay. And so he went ahead and sold the papacy when the money had been paid, he reclaimed it, saying that one is Pope as long as one lives. Reports like this that circulated throughout Europe scandalized many good people. And reform movements sprang up in uh, many places. The most important of these probably was the reform movement around the Abbey of Cluny in Burgundy because it had the ear and support of a very full, very powerful emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor named Henry III. He marched his troops to Rome, took the city, uh, deposed the Pope, imprisoned him, and replaced him with the first of a series of reform popes. One of those popes was Gregory the a former German monk by the name of Hildebrand, who belonged to the uh, radical fringe of the reform movement. The radical fringe believed that the problems of the church were largely due to what they called lay investiture. Uh, When he became pope, Gregory issued a decree against lay investiture. Now that may sound to us today as a reasonable thing to do, Uh, Because we believe in the separation of church and state. But then it was a revolutionary idea. Because ever since the time of the Emperor Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor, uh, it was held that a king and an emperor was the anointed of the Lord, he was God's man on earth. They believed in theocratic kingship. The emperor or the king was the David who ruled over the people of Israel. Gregory followed up by issuing a document called the Dictatus Papae, the Dictate of the Pope, Um, And I'm going to bring out some of the salient points in that document. That the Roman church alone was founded by God. None of the other churches, not even the Orthodox church centered around Constantinople too, The Roman pontiff alone is rightly to be called universal, Catholic. That meant that the Pope in Rome was responsible for all Christians, wherever they might be. Three, that he alone can depose and reinstate bishops, That he alone may use the imperial insignia. Now, that's a new idea. He has power over the imperial office, power over the state, that's what he claims. He would have power over the presidential seal that he may depose emperors, that he himself may be judged by no one, that no one shall dare to condemn a person who appeals to the apostolic see. In other words, he makes himself the highest court of appeals. The Roman church has never erred, nor ever, by the witness of scripture, shall err to all eternity. He does not mention which scripture supports that claim. That the Pope may absolve subjects of unjust men from their fealty. Who determines who are unjust men? And in in claiming this, he strikes at the very foundation of medieval society, which is based on the fealty oath, the oath of loyalty that a vassal swears to his lord. Well, this new theory, these claims, would soon be tested. When the Archbishopric of Milan in northern Italy became vacant, the new young emperor in Germany, Henry the Fourth, appointed uh, his uh, choice um, to fill that post. The pope immediately challenged him, um, demanding that the emperor retract this step. But the emperor could not do so. Because if he gave up control over northern Italy, he gave up control over Rome as well. So much then for the Holy Roman Empire. The Pope responded by excommunicating Henry. Now he was no longer a Christian. How could he rule over a Christian people? And the pope made a common cause with the emperor's enemies in Germany. They agreed on one point. They did not want a powerful emperor that would tell them what to do, what not to do. And so the emperor was left with little choice but to travel to Italy in the company of a few loyal supporters. Uh, They met the Pope uh, outside uh, the city of Canossa, where he was holed up in a papal castle. He was on the way to Germany to uh, make sure that Henry would would be deposed. And there, Henry stood for three days barefoot in the snow. Dra- uh, dressed in a sackcloth, ashes on his head, and begged for forgiveness. The ultimate humiliation of the state, of the authority of the state, before the church. This event at Canossa would be remembered in Germany by German patriots for centuries to come It was well-remembered at the time of the Reformation, and it was well-remembered in our time as well. The event at Canossa was followed by a series of civil wars, but more importantly, perhaps, by a propaganda war that lasted for generations. Scholars in the employment of the papacy made a case for papal superiority and scholars for the emperor made the case for the superiority the authority of, of the Pope. In the process the authority of both was significantly damaged. During their struggle to get rid of German domination in Italy, the reformed popes uh, encouraged the development of a popular protest movement. Um, uh, in Italy, people comparing the lifestyle of these German appointees, many of them bishops, who lived rather a worldly lifestyle uh, to that of the apostles. They wanted a return to apostolic poverty. When the papacy succeeded in replacing these German bosses with Italians, with papal appointees, their lifestyle differed little from the German foreigners, and so the protest movement, which was known as the Humiliati, the humble ones, became a boomerang, and became counterproductive to papal interests, because they now critiqued papal appointees and the papacy itself. As a result, they were persecuted as heretics, One of the great saints of the Catholic Church, Saint Francis of Assisi, uh, was suspected of being a member of these Humiliates. And he and his companions, his first companions, were investigated. Uh, Had it not been for the uh, support of one of the cardinals who was secretly an admirer of Francis, he probably, along with his companions, would have been burned at the stake. The Franciscan order uh, soon developed a reputation for piety, for being upright Christians. And so they attracted donations, uh, people who wanted to store up treasures in heaven, would leave their estates to the Franciscan order. Um, Some hundred years after the order was founded, the leaders, or at least some of the leaders of the Franciscan order decided it was time for a reformation. They wanted to return the order to the apostolic model of their founder, And in doing so, they proposed that the wealth of that order should be distributed among the poor population. Other Franciscans, who rather enjoyed the wealth and the comfort that it brought, argued that property, money given to God, could not be distributed, given away to the poor. And they were supported by the papacy. That split the order into conventional Franciscans and the spiritual Franciscans. The Franciscans, Francis, spiritual Franciscans uh, continued to preach that Christ and the apostles and Francis had owned no property that was declared heretical. And the spiritual Franciscans were persecuted throughout Europe. There was hardly a village or town anywhere in Western Europe that did not see the torture and burning at the stake of some of the finest Christian people that they had known in their community. The church Was devouring its own children. Other so-called heresies in the Middle Ages that uh, experienced the wrath of the papal church were the Albigensians and the Waldensians. Um, Albigensians in southern France and the Waldensians in southeastern France and in northern Italy. Uh, Peter Valdo or Valdez uh, had been a, a wealthy, uh, wealthy merchant who was inspired by the story of the rich young ruler and gave away his wealth to the poor and started preaching as a lay preacher. When he critiqued criticized he and his followers the uh, higher clergy for their worldly lifestyle, living in luxury, exploiting the poor people. Well, the church took a dim view of that movement and declared it a heresy. So the Albigensians and the Waldensians were soon persecuted and uh, were the the object of of inquisition uh, and of crusades that were waged against them. Uh, southern France, a flowering civilization, perhaps the most advanced civilization in all of Europe, was destroyed. Uh, the Waldensians engines were driven into the Alps where they were hiding. Uh, where they survived eventually until the time of the Protestant Reformation when they joined with the Reformed Church in Geneva. The Waldensians, by the way, still exist as a separate denomination in Europe today. Uh, The Inquisition, I mentioned uh, the Inquisition, was an instrument established by the papal church uh, to ferret out Uh, the suspected heretics. And uh, these uh, agents, these inquisitors, many of them, only half-educated individuals, some of them rather power-hungry, were using torture to ferret out uh, people who had been accused of, uh, of heresy. Many of those who were convicted and burned Uh, were no heretics whatsoever. Um, Your only hope when you were accused of heresy by maybe an envious neighbor or somebody else who had a grudge against you was to confess if you wanted to escape being tortured. This is how the church dealt with people who demanded reform, going back to the original uh, blueprint of Christianity. By the time of the 14th century, the papacy, which had gotten rid of German domination in part with the help of French kings, had fallen under the control of those French kings. Uh, The cardinals were intimidated. and We cannot go into any detail because of lack of time. They elected the first of a series of French popes who, when he was on his way to Rome, decided to spend the time during the winter at a papal palace in southern France at Avignon. Uh, This is the period that follows. The next popes were French, known as the French papacy. Uh, It was controversial in many places in Europe because Europeans saw it as an instrument of the French interests, particularly those in Britain and in Germany who were not the best of friends with the French. So the papacy became somewhat divisive. The reputation of the French papacy was pretty bad. During that time already, people talked about the Babylonian captivity of the church in Avignon. One of the most famous individuals in Europe at the time, the great Italian poet, Petrarch of Florence, had grown up at the court in Avignon, where his father was a a papal lawyer. He had first-hand experience of what it was like. He called it the horrible prison. There were many dungeons. Uh, He called it the hell on earth. He called it the whore of Babylon. not exactly suitable to enhance the reputation that was already bad for the papacy. The last of these French popes decided it was time to return to Rome. When he got there, he found the political climate not acceptable. The Roman aristocracy had too much power and influence over the papacy and its policies, and so he decided to return to Avignon, along with a number of cardinals, some others stayed behind. The Romans proceeded to elect another pope. Now you had two popes, one in Avignon, one in Rome, and each one excommunicated the other and placed the area of Europe supporting the other pope under interdict, meaning that all sacraments administered would not be effective. That left the common people uh, in a quandary. What if their leaders had elected to support the wrong pope? Their salvation was in jeopardy. It was bad, particularly at the universities. Universities then were truly European institutions. Latin was the course of instruction no matter where you went. You could study a semester at Oxford, the next semester in Paris, the next semester in Prague, the next semester in Bologna. It was an international student body at every university. And the same thing was true of the faculty. Now, students refused to sit in classes taught by a professor who supported the wrong pope. Or they refused to sit in the same pew along with other students who supported the wrong pope. So that threw a wrench into the academic process. And uh, the professors soon came up with an answer to the problem to the problem. It was called conciliarism. The idea that the council of the church was the highest authority. They called a council to meet in Pisa in Italy. They deposed the two popes in Avignon and Rome elected another one to make sure that this pope would prevail they elected a condottieri a condottieri was a war contractor a soldier, a professional soldier as pope because they felt he needed to be able to defeat the others well that did not work out now you had Three popes, a three-way papal schism, each one excommunicating the other and placing the areas of the others in jeopardy, under interdict. The conciliarists approached the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who called a council to meet on his turf. In Germany, the Council of Constance, which convened in 1415. In the Council of Constance uh, had three items on their agenda to take care of. First one was to heal the papal schism. The second one was to what they called extirpate heresy. The third one was to heal the church in head and members. It was widely realized. The church needed reform. They quickly dispatched with the first item that he all three popes and the emperor made it stick. And they elected a new one who went promptly down to Rome to work hard to regain his authority that had been lost. The second agenda item Concerned heresies primarily in Britain and in um, and in Bohemia, part of the of the Holy Roman. I guess we're advancing too much here. Um, the heresy in in Britain in England uh, was uh, the result of the work of a professor. Uh, at Oxford University, highly regarded, very popular. Uh, by the time of the, of the Constance uh, Council, he either already died, but his followers were spreading throughout the country in the underground, uh, carrying Bibles and teaching his Reformation message. I'm going to give a few excerpts From one of his uh, writings, um, it was, uh, among other things, questioning the doctrine of indulgences of the papal church. I confess that the indulgences of the Pope, if they are indeed what they are said to be, are a manifest blasphemy, inasmuch as he claims the power to save men almost without limits any mortal shall finally be condemned during the time of any pope, the pope himself would be guilty of his destruction because he has neglected to save him. He could do so. Moreover, it appears that this doctrine is a manifest blasphemy against Christ inasmuch as the pope is extolled above his humanity. And so, above all, that is God. Pretensions which, according to the declarations of the apostles, agree with the character of Antichrist. For he possesses Caesarian powers above Christ, who had no word to lay his head. It behoved Christ to suffer the most bitter passion for the salvation of man. This renegade says that it is allowable that he should live as luxuriously as he may choose. As may be expected from Antichrist, he sets forth new laws and insists that the whole church shall believe in them as though it were part of the gospel. The other heresy was that of John Huss in Bohemia, centered around the city of Prague. He was an academic as well, rector of the university for a while. Professors are troublemakers, you know. It. If you don't believe it yet, wait until I tell you what Martin Luther, Professor Luther, the Hussites Huss and his uh, supporters uh, followed pretty much the same line as Wycliffe. Uh, Huss had come to the same conclusions he had seen the papal schism he had seen how popes had gone to war against other popes had declared crusades preaching crusades throughout Europe asking for money to finance their wars against against city-states that supported the wrong pope. Um, and so like Wycliffe, he called he, he called for reform. Reform of the higher clergy, reform of their lifestyles. Um, he was invited to come uh, to the Council of Florence. The emperor issued a letter of safe conduct. In other words, a promise that he would travel safely and it was implied to return safely to Prague. When he arrived, he was promptly arrested. He was accused of heresy, asked to recant. He refused, saying that he needed to be convinced or convicted by scripture, on the basis of scripture that He was wrong. Of course, when you have authority, you don't have to make sense. And so, because he refused, he was burned at the stake. The result was that the Bohemians rose in rebellion. Even those that were not Whitley fights, they were not supporters of of John Hus. were offended because the emperor had not kept his word given to a bohemian they would not stand for that man to rule over them consequence was a series of Hussite wars and the Hussites continued to exist until the time of the Protestant Reformation Another one that many of you may be familiar with uh, that I'd like to mention briefly only uh, was Girolamo Savonarola. He was a priest, a friar in the city-state of Florence who attacked the lifestyle of the higher clergy, including the papacy, uh, with good reason. He compared the life of the clergy to the leaders of the early Christian church. And he said it is true that the early church did not have the glorious, beautiful churches that we have today, but their prelates, their leaders were men of gold. The leaders we have today are are made of wood dry as tinder ready to be burned in the fires of hell. He was very popular, but, uh, but eventually had caught up with him, and he too was burned at the stake. He was not a heretic, in the doctrinal sense of the word. He wanted to return, like so many of, us, of others had done before him, he wanted to return the church to the apostolic poverty of the early church. The Roman church, the papal church, was not suitable to fulfill the spiritual needs of the people. And so many people sought to find spiritual fulfillment on their own. Some of them through heretical movements. Others, especially in northern Europe, through what is called Christian um, mysticism. Uh, Mystic seeks a personal encounter with God, a personal experience based largely on meditation. One of the pioneers and one of the leaders of uh, mysticism was a university professor again, Meister Eckhart. Uh, St. Francis had taught that to put one's trust In material goods, in mammon, was ultimately going to be a failure. Mammon would betray you. Meister Eckhart went a step further and said, to put your trust in intellectual goods, in knowledge, in having the truth, in believing to correct doctrines, will ultimately fail you too. What will save you is an encounter, an experience with God, with Lord Jesus Christ. Through meditation, particularly through meditation on the life of Christ, especially on the passion of Christ, as found in the Gospels. The mystics formed loose communities of, uh, of, of uh, uh, settlements. They were known as the friends of God. They were designed to assist each other in the Christian life. How to become a better Christian. There were some that were semi-monastic uh, the so-called brethren of the common life. Um, and one of their number was Thomas who became famous through his publication of a book called The Imitatio Christi or The Imitation of Christ it was a manual for meditation and you can guess from the title of, that, of the book What it means to be a Christian is to imitate Christ, to become like Christ. How do you become like Christ? First, you must know what Christ was like. And so you went to the Gospels. You read the Gospels for yourself. You did not rely on the interpretation of some half-educated priests. To read the Gospels, of course, you needed to learn how to read. Education thus became important. And in time, they were not satisfied by just studying Latin in school, but studying Greek as well. Because... You wanted to read the Gospels in the original language for yourself. And so the brethren of the common life founded some educational institutions around northern Europe. And these uh, institutions trained, or better yet, educated some of Europe's Reformation leaders including Martin Luther. The Italian Renaissance, or the Renaissance, I should say, was largely at first an Italian phenomenon. that uh, started by rediscovering the civilization of antiquity after the dark ages had passed. The driving force behind uh, the Renaissance was the humanist movement. Humanists studied classical Latin, which was different from the pidgin Latin that was taught at the universities in the Middle Ages, and Greek, to be able to get at the secrets of classical civilization. What was it to make them so great? In the process of trying to get at the sources, at fontes, as they called it, they invented the science of philology. Uh, Philology is the study of the history of a language because languages are living organisms, if you will, that change over time and place. And by studying their history, you could use your insights to date manuscripts precisely, fairly precisely, usually within 10 years Uh, by date and place one of the humanists uh, interestingly enough uh, discovered uh, that the um, the Donation of Constantine a document that uh, claimed to be the underpinnings of the papal states uh, papal secular power in Italy um, was a forgery it uh, it uh, uh, claimed that it was written in the time of Constantine the Great, the emperor, who had made over Italy to the papacy as the patrimony of Saint Peter. Lorenzo Valla, the humanist, uh, established that this document, a forgery, actually originated several centuries. Several centuries after what it claimed. The philosophy of the humanists is perhaps best illustrated by Giovanni Pico della Mirandola uh, who, who taught that when God had created man in his image. He endowed him with an animal-like body and with mind, with intellect, and with spirit, with a soul. Above all, God endowed him with the freedom of will power to choose. He could choose what he would be. He could descend to the lower levels and nurture the animal nature in him and become more like the brutes. And uh, I think there are many people throughout history that uh, would fit that picture or they could choose to emphasize and to nourish the seeds within him that were more spiritual and more intellectual. The implication was that you should rise above the level of the beasts. Be careful who you associate with. Be careful what you read. Be careful with your entertainment. Be careful with the TV programs you watch. Whichever seed a man nurtures, that will grow in him. God had created man in his image but God was spirit and so the image of God meant divine qualities within man. the creator gave man creative talents as well and now it was your job to find out which creative talents you were given. Test yourself in all disciplines. Try to be the best you can be. This was the ideal of the Renaissance man uh, skilled, excellent in all things. And because of that philosophy, Italy produced some of the finest artists that the world has ever seen. Humanists, therefore, believed in education, a broadly based, a liberal education. In the North, humanism also took hold. And the northern humanists shared in common with the Italian humanists that uh, man was given the freedom of will, power of choice. They shared with them their belief and the edifying power of education they shared with them their belief that we must start over at the beginning, go back to the sources. The difference was that the Italians went back to classical civilization, whereas the northern humanists were interested in going back to early Christianity, to the Christians. Courses. Education for them was to become a better Christian, not for the glorification of man. That is the difference, and that is a significant difference that is not widely understood in our age. The exponents of uh, Christian uh, humanism in northern Europe include many names um, some of them in power positions some of them the advisors uh, of kings and dukes um, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam is perhaps the most significant of them he's often referred to as the king of the Christian humanists he uh, published the first critical edition Of the Greek New Testament, a a document that uh, was based on the most recent research and the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, a document that Luther used to translate his New Testament. Um, The humanists were not organized. But they soon became organized due to an event that was called the Reuchlin feud. Johann Reuchlin, a humanist, was Europe's leading um, Hebrew scholar. He became a controversial figure when he was approached by the Dominicans in Cologne, the city of Cologne, Uh, with the request for a professional opinion. Um, They wanted to round up all rabbinical literature in the empire and destroy it. When you go to get a professional opinion from an expert, of course, you expect that he would agree with you. Well, when that did not happen, uh, said on the contrary not only should we not destroy that literature we should promote it it is good literature it should be more widely read and they were scandalized and they attacked him personally calling him a secret judaizer one that was undermining the Christian faith and the humanists around Europe or Northern Europe saw that as an attack on all of them and they closed ranks. Uh, One of their number was uh, Ulrich von Hutten. He was an imperial knight directly under the emperor. Uh, He was recently crowned as poet laureate of the empire. And he wielded his pen in the defense of Euchlin by attacking the Dominicans. In a publication that was called Epistolorum Obscurorum, Epistles of Obscure Men, he used satire to poke fun at the hair-splitting arguments of these scholastic people of the old school that was passé. And they became the laughingstock of Europe. I would like to go back. Philip Melanchthon, of course, there was another prominent uh, Christian humanist, uh, an associate of Martin Luther in the Reformation, and we'll hear more about him later on. But back to Erasmus. Erasmus published widely uh, and uh, among other things he took a dim view of the church as it existed. Um, Among other things he attacked the indulgences. Um, Here are some of his words on the need for church reform. What shall I say about those who happily delude themselves with false pardons for their sins? They calculate the time to be spent in purgatory down to the year, months, day, and hour as if it were a container that could be measured accurately with a mathematical formula. There are also those who think there is nothing they cannot obtain by relying on the magical prayers and charms thought up by some charlatan for the sake of his soul or for profit. To place the whole religion in external ceremonies is sublime stupidity. This amounts to revolt against the spirit of the gospel and is a reversion to the superstition of Judaism. St. Paul was incessant in his attempt to remove the Jews from their faith in external works. I feel that the vast majority of Christians today have sunk once again into this unhealthy situation. Charity does not consist in many visits to churches, in many prostrations before the statues of saints in the lighting of candles or the repetition of a number of designated prayers of all these things God has no need Paul declares charity to be the edification of one's neighbor the attempt to integrate all men into one body so that all men may become one in Christ. The loving of one's neighbor as one's self. Charity for Paul has many facets. He is charitable who rebukes the erring, who teaches the ignorant, who lifts up the fallen, who consoles the downhearted, who supports the needy. Erasmus was widely called the hen that laid the egg that Martin Luther hatched. Make Christ the only goal in your life dedicate to him all your enthusiasm, all your effort, your leisure, as well as your business. And don't look upon Christ as a mere word, an empty expression, but rather as charity, simplicity, patience, and purity. In short, in terms of everything he has taught us, Consider as the devil, on the other hand, anything that deters us from Christ and his teaching. Direct your gaze toward Christ alone. To the extent that you love nothing or desire nothing, unless it be either Christ or because of Christ. Blessed are they who hear the word of God inwardly. And with that, we have come to the dawn of the Protestant Reformation.
0: Roland, thank you very much for what you have shared with us this evening. One of the thoughts that I had as I was listening is that uh, when you describe what the church was like back then, maybe some of our arguments that we're having today aren't quite as important as we think they are. Maybe. I don't know. It would be terrible to be burned at the stake because you just didn't support the right church leader. That would be bad. So... We look forward to tomorrow. Uh, Tomorrow, he will share with us uh, some of Luther's own words. Uh, As we worship together, he will will do that and uh, how the the Reformation caught on. And then in the afternoon, we will look at uh, how we need to keep the legacy of the Reformation alive in our own day. For those of you that might be staying by to eat tomorrow, There will be a little bit of time between the end of the meal and when we come back together at 3 o'clock. We will have uh, some discussion questions prepared for you as you sit around your table that you might like to talk about, some of the things that you've heard tonight and tomorrow. So we'll look forward to that too. Again, uh, Roland, thank you very much. Thank you all for being here this evening. We'd like to close with prayer, and we'll see you in the morning. Lord Jesus, again, as we think about the, the hundreds of years and how how the history just wound its way toward that explosion that had to happen. Um, we thank you that there were men of courage that were willing to give their lives, millions of them, and women, so that we might have the, the, the legacy that these, that these thinkers taught, the fact that we can have choice, free choice, whether we're going to serve you or not. To us, it just seems so natural, but it's hard hard to believe that there was a time when people didn't even understand that, and yet you raised up men and women to keep those truths alive and to fan them. We thank you that we are the recipients of the life work of so many of those people. May we, may we treat it with respect and may it bear fruit in our own lives as well. Again, thank you for Roland. We ask that your spirit go with us as we go and that you bring us back here safe in the morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.